Well, good afternoon. I thought on such a warm day we could at least do some calisthenics or something to keep us all awake. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we will read from verse 14 through 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. using the New International Version this afternoon. These opening chapters of Revelation, particularly chapter 2 and 3, recount the direct messages of Jesus Christ to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia. Just to set the context, John, the apostle, the last surviving apostle of the band of apostles who had followed Christ, has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He's been placed there by the Roman government. He has been placed there under their protection under their authority. They consider him a threat to the empire because of his testimony to the word of God and the reality of the risen Christ. While he is there, because of his testimony, because of his stand for the gospel, God opens up for him deep insight into truth. That's often the way it is, isn't it? That in the most difficult, dark hours of our lives, God opens up for us new truth. That's just the way God has designed our world and designed our life. And particularly if we're in Christ, those times of trials, those times of difficulty become the doorways through which God speaks. And as Christ reveals himself to John and and he invites him and, and, and directs him to write letters to churches, he has a specific message for each church. He knows each church. He is the Lord of the church and back In the Gospels, of course, Jesus himself said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's look to God in prayer. Father, with your word open before us, we thank you that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray, Father, that by your word, which you have given to us by your spirit, that you would reveal Christ to us. Thank you for this direct message, these words from the very mouth of Christ through the pen of John. 
to real congregations. We pray that we would hear today what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. And individually, we would hear what you are saying to our own hearts. We pray that you would use your truth to transform our thinking, to enlighten our understanding that we might catch a fresh glimpse of Christ and what it means to follow hard after him. So, Lord, I pray as the psalmist wrote that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to speak this afternoon on the subject of opening the door to Christ, using this passage, using this uh, letter where Christ has directed, this is the seventh of the seven churches, and in this last letter before John is given a glimpse of actually what is going on in heaven, the Spirit of God, through the Son of God, directs him to write down this instruction, specific instruction for the church, the church of Laodicea. Look at the Christ of the church. Look at the, the one who is writing these words. In verse 14, we read, to the angel, or some translations, to the messenger of the church. There is to be a communication. It has come directly from Christ. It has come to John, and John is writing to the messenger, and he anticipates that the messenger of the church will take the words of Christ, read those words to the church, and have the church listen and respond and engage with Christ. It is a meeting with Christ. When we gather to hear the word of Christ, when, when we gather to worship Christ, we are meeting with Christ. We are hearing Christ. And we must receive and must respond to his word. And so to this messenger, he, he says to John, to, this, to the messenger of this church, I want you to write these words. These are the words of the amen or the amen, depending where you went to school, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now when we use the word amen at the end of a prayer, I'll stick with that and try to be consistent through this part, but when we use that, we use it as an assent to church, assent to truth, pardon me. Uh, there, sometimes when I've been preaching in the, the southern states or in a Caribbean congregation even within the GTA, and I get to see, hear the same sermon twice, there's just this engagement with truth, right? The more you preach, the more amens you hear. Now, I know we're in King City, and you don't do that here perhaps, but typically there is this affirmation. We assent, we are expressing our agreement. That's what the amen is. It isn't just the end. It's saying, so be it. May this happen. We agree, Lord, we, we believe this. We're asking you to do this. Turn back with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16. In this Old Testament prophet, God again is speaking to his people and in verse uh, 16, it indicates the, this, it uses this as a title for God. Look at ver, beginning in verse 15. You will leave your name to my chosen ones as a curse. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants, he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the God of truth. Notice that. 
by the Amen. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. The sense that God is the Amen is the sense of certainty. When God declares himself to be the Amen, and back in Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus Christ describes himself as the Amen, this is the, the, the seal of approval. This is Christ saying, God has spoken. This is how it will be accomplished. This is how it will be forwarded. Turn back, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 3. He is the Amen. He is the truth. Where this stands in sharp contrast is the fact that this church, this actual church in Laodicea, was marked by uncertainty. I don't know either of your congregations very well, but a number of churches in our day are marked by uncertainty. There is an uncertain word at times spoken from the pulpit. There is an uncertain truth, as it were, affirmed. People are hesitant. We don't want to sound too narrow in pluralistic Canada. And here, as Christ declares himself and reveals himself to the church, he says to the church, I am the Lord of certainty. I am the Christ of truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the standard for what you believe. And so we need to take fresh courage. We need to, as it were, reset our compasses by the reference point of who Christ is and the absolute certainty that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He speaks with certainty. He acts with certainty. We have a sure word of prophecy, a sure word of truth when we have the Bible in our hands. We're blessed to have it in the language we understand. The Christ of the church not only describes himself as the Amen, but look as well, he describes himself as the faithful and true witness. The reality in those early years of church history was that there were a number of waves of persecution. Christianity was seen as an upstart religion, as a faith that was taking on the empire. And there was an emperor. If you study early Roman history, you know that there were some of the emperors, and one in particular, who declared himself to be Lord, who declared himself to be the divine sovereign. And so Christians then had a choice. Or did they really have a choice? Would you say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord? Christ is encouraging faithfulness in witness. I am the faithful and true witness. The word for witness is the word martyr. A martyr, a witness, sees and testifies what he sees. Christ unashamedly testified. He remained faithful. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. His witness, his testimony, was marked, was sealed by his own blood. And in the early years of the church, this was true as well. Many, many Christians 
sealed their testimony, sealed their declaration that Jesus Christ was, was Lord and is Lord with a willingness to die. Why do you think the Colosseum was built? How was it used there in Rome? As Christian after Christian stood before a raging crowd and declared, my faith, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do we have that kind of commitment? Or do we step back? Do we, are we hesitant when we witness, when we testify? The Spirit of God can give us that kind of holy boldness to speak for Christ, to stay true to Christ, and to represent him well before a skeptical world. Christ The head of the church is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He's the ruler of God's creation. He is over all creation. He is the creator. By him, John says in John 1, 3, all things were made. He is the creator. He is worthy. We've already taken time in worship to Christ. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our honor. He is God. He is the Christ of the church. He is the Lord of the church. Now, what condition is this church in? Look at verse 15. I know, Jesus says, Christ tells this church, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Christ uses geography to illustrate spiritual truth. It's quite remarkable. The water of Laodicea was a problem. The the, the major weakness... For this city, was there was really no adequate water supply. They had to pipe in the water from a community about six miles south through an aqueduct. Their water was transported from hot springs six miles away. And by the time it arrived at the city, it was lukewarm. In a nearby city, there was a city near Colossae, and that city had a cold source of spring, cold spring water source. Laodicea didn't have hot springs, didn't have mountain fresh cold water. It had lukewarm water. How many of you enjoy lukewarm water? One Sunday while I was preaching, one summer Sunday a number of years ago in the church in northern Ontario, uh, I was, it was a blistering hot day. There was no air conditioning in the church. And there was a faithful usher in the church who always brought a glass of water and set it there in the pulpit. Well, this particular Sunday, a lot of Sundays I never touched the water, but that particular Sunday I was, I don't want to drop this here, I was really thirsty. So in between, as we were looking up for references, I picked up the water, took a big mouthful, and realized it was last week's water. 
a mouthful of lukewarm, I don't think there were flies in it, but regardless, what, what does that make you feel like? That's the picture. Follow along. I know, Jesus said, your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Cold water is refreshing. Hot water, hot springs are invigorating. Some of you may have gone to Banff or other places in the world where there are hot springs. And both extremes are great, but lukewarm water is just, it's just yuck, isn't it? You know, cold water, icy cold water, refreshing for drinking. And people find refreshment in that water. Hot water, even boiling hot water, is, could be dangerous, but it's refreshing for bathing. And people find refreshment. But Christ looks at this church and says, you are neither. You are not refreshing to anyone. You are lukewarm. Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, because you're not hot, because you're not cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You make me nauseous. I mean, that, that, that's quite a gross picture, isn't it? Even on a hot Sunday, summer Sunday afternoon. How was this lack of usefulness, this lack of refreshment, how was it showing up in their own attitude? Follow along, verse 17. You say, you see, churches have their own perception of how they really are. We all do. We have our own self-awareness, our own self-perception of how things are going, how we appear, how we conduct ourselves, what kind of a personality we have. And churches have that as well. And Christ had been listening and tuning into their conversations. This church, this church in Laodicea, said, verse 17, you say, I am rich. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Did you realize that this city, because of its intersection of three major trade routes, was one of the richest commercial centers of the ancient world? It was a prominent center of banking and commerce. The, the, the ancient world's equivalent of New York, Toronto, or London. It, it, it was so wealthy that in, in AD 60, when there was a large earthquake which destroyed many cities in the region, the, the city said to the empire, they sent authorities from Rome, and, and the city said, listen, we don't need your help. We're fine. We have all kinds of resources to rebuild the infrastructure which has been destroyed by an earthquake. Thanks but no thanks. Christ picks up on that illustration to describe the condition of the church. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you don't realize, you, you, you're not even aware that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked, you are more needy than you realize. He uses clothing as a picture. 
Laodicea was a city known for the soft, glossy black wool that sheep herders produced through their careful breeding and good grazing of their flocks. It was a medical city. Laodicea had a world-renowned medical school which had discovered a miraculous, almost a miraculous eye salve, eye cream that had healing powers in it. So Christ takes their geography, he takes their economy, he takes their industry, he takes their medical condition and says to them, you think you're well off. You think you're rich when you're poor. You think you're well clothed when you're naked. You think you're healthy when you're sick. Your perception is distorted. Now, how does that happen? Have you ever been asked how you're feeling and you're, <coughs> I'm fine. Right? Have you ever, 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 anybody told that kind of a truth? I'm fine. <coughs> Right? This church had that kind of perception. This church had a distorted view of reality. And Christ knew their condition. Christ knew their condition. You don't realize, verse 17 again, that you are wretched. You think things are great. You're in desperate shape. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. Of all the cities in the world, you are in desperate condition. Are we really willing to let God look into our hearts? As a church, are we really willing to pray with the psalmist? Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. That, that, that's a transparent prayer, isn't it? What does the psalmist mean when he asks, Lord, who may ascend into your holy hill? Who may stand in your holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You see, the reality as we come into the presence of a God who is a God of light, we see the darkness and we come for cleansing unless we turn and we move away from the light. Turn back with me, please, to John chapter 3. Well-known text, of course, John 3, 16. But in the following verses, Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, realize here is the Lord Jesus Christ having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a senior religious, Jewish religious leader in the nation. He reminds them of his history there in verse 14 where he says, As Moses... Nicodemus, remember how Moses lifted up that serpent, that snake in the wilderness? 
Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him... Remember how the people had to look at that snake, that serpent, in order to live? People today must look to Christ in order to live. And then the well-known, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, that is in Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now notice these verses, beginning in verse 19. This is the verdict. Light, light has come into the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. We move away from the light. We run from the light. We f- the light is exposing. The light reveals. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Why? So that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. In one sense, as a church, we are really a place of light, are we not? If if Jesus Christ, who said, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If he's the center of our gatherings, then when when we come into his presence, darkness will flee, will it not? I remember wondering as a kid, you know, when, when, when you put the light on, where, where did the darkness go? Couldn't figure that out. Still can't figure that out. Some of you are good in physics. You know, I didn't do so well in that department in school. You can explain to me, where does the darkness go when the light gets bright? Spiritually, ask yourself the same question. Darkness seeks to hide and trembles at his voice because our God is a God of light. Our God is a God of light. So back to Revelation chapter 3. As we gather in the name of Christ, as we gather to honor Christ, the light, as it were, comes up. It glows with a brightness. And we see ourselves individually. We see ourselves collectively for who we are. You say, I'm rich. What happened? This church... This church had impaired vision that no eye salve from the medical faculty of the Laodicean University could heal. This church was naked that no clothing from the manufacturing department, the, 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 the uh, garment department in the warehouses of Laodicea could cover. This church had a need. So what is his counsel? If Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth, if he is Lord, if he's the king of kings, if he's the head of the church, what is his counsel? 
What direction does he give to this body of believers to move them out of their self-satisfaction into an absolute dependence upon himself? Look at verse 18. I counsel you. I ask you today, are you willing to let Christ counsel you individually and collectively? What a promise. This is no church consultant. This is no outside expert. This is the Lord of the church coming to this church, coming to his bride, coming to his body, and saying to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can be cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. What is he saying? In summary, you get what you need from Christ. What do you need as a church? What do you need as a family? What do you need as an individual? Go to Christ with your need. Stop being self-sufficient. He has all your need. What kind of gold? Gold that has been refined. Apparently, it's, it, it melts at 1,062 Celsius. That's hot. We're talking pure gold. Tr- true riches are found in Christ. Now, what happens during the week as we move away from fellowship, as we set aside, if we don't stay engaged with truth, we turn to other riches, do we not? Isn't that the temptation of the Christian life? That we find our riches in other things and we leave Christ behind. Christ invites us to come back. Go to Christ with your need. His wealth can meet your need. His wealth can match your poverty. His clothing can cover your nakedness. His eye salve can bring healing to your sight. So what is his correction as we close in these final paragraphs. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. What is your perception, what is your biblical understanding of the love that God has for you? Those whom I love, I rebuke, and discipline. The greatest evidence of judgment in Scripture is when I turn my back on Christ, when I turn my back on Him and head away. If there is no discipline, then there's no relationship. I'm not a son. Read Hebrews 12 if it's been a while. The writer there says, now no discipline. It's probably the most understated verse in the Bible. Now no discipline for the present seems to be joyful but painful. Anybody agree with that? Nevertheless, afterwards, it produces the fruit of righteousness. Who wants to have a family over with undisciplined kids? Isn't that just the greatest blessing? You know, the husband and wife, and my, my, my dear wife says, my hand's getting itchy. What does she mean by that? Well, I can explain to you afterwards. 
We're not too fond of having undisciplined kids. Listen, God has no undisciplined children. Read Hebrews 12. If we are without discipline, if we are without correction of which all are partakers, then we are illegitimate children and not sons. God doesn't let his kids act any way they want to. Our pastor preached this morning, Calvary Oshawa, on Jonah. Did God have a plan for Jonah? He had a plan for Nineveh. He had a plan for Jonah. Did Jonah get it? Jonah got it. Eventually. I mean, he really got it, didn't he? New place to pray in the belly of a fish. Wow. Began to think about God in new ways. And yet still there was no repentance in that prayer. God had some more lessons to teach even after Jonah was belched out of the belly of the fish onto the dry ground. Read about it again if you haven't seen it for some time. So in the correction of this church, Christ says, I love you, so I'm going to discipline you. I'm sure many parents have said, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Anybody use that line? We should sell that on a tape or a CD or an MP3 now, shouldn't we? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He's speaking to a church. So be earnest and repent. Repentance is a change of mind. If I'm walking this way and I repent, it is a change of mind. It is a complete reversal of how I've been conducting myself. He calls the church to repent. Nowhere in Scripture does God expect the ungodly to act as godly people. 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name, that sounds like Christ followers, that sounds like covenant followers of God, doesn't it? If they shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What hinders revival? It's not the ungodly conditions. It's the lack of the godly seeking God. I ask you, are you one of those people of Hebrews eleven six? He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Enough half-heartedness. Don't be one of those kind of people. Be fully in with Christ. Be a diligent seeker of God. That theme runs again and again through the pages of Scripture. So how does Christ close this letter, this letter to a church? Here I am. Behold, I stand at the door of the church. Would one person, if anyone, just one person, hears the voice of Christ and goes to the door and opens it and invites him in, he'll come in. One person. So I ask you, when you came here this afternoon, did you bring Christ with you to this auditorium? Did you invite him to come? When you sang today, did you sing to Christ? Did you pray to Christ? He's knocking at the door. Are we listening? If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
This verse gets so twisted. This is not a verse for the unconverted. I've seen the picture, Christ at the heart's door. This is Christ at the church's door. And the invitation by the Lord of the church, the Christ of the church who has counseled and pled and died for her is, are you listening? Will you invite me and will anyone invite me to come in? To him who overcomes, verse 21, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then this summary verse which echoes through chapters 2 and 3 is brought one more time into the hearing of this congregation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's talking. The question is, are we listening? We get concerned in our marriage relationships or with our kids. We're saying, are you listening to me? Have you ever asked that? Am I the only one? Just, is this, does this only work in Oshawa? Right? Are you, are, do you hear what I'm saying to you? Hear the Lord of heaven and earth, the Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus Christ says, if you have ears, Listen. And don't just listen in one ear and out the other. Hear and respond and engage with what God is saying. And turn your hearts back to him. I want us to take a few moments now in prayer before our team comes to lead us in the closing psalm. But I would just invite us to let this be a time of searching. Would you join me in In that prayer of the psalmist, I quoted earlier in my prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let me just give us a few minutes for you to say, Lord, here I am today, this first Sunday of July 2013, you know my heart. You know my ways. Help me to hear what you are saying. Father in heaven, we thank you for the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that he has spoken. He is again this day through your perfect word given us an opportunity to hear the very heart of God. We pray that this day we would invite Christ in. That we would intentionally as individuals, as families, but particularly as a church family, invite Christ to have his rightful place of worship, 
his rightful place of ruling over our lives. We hear his question to the disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Oh, Father, we come to the cross. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you that as you have brought us into the light of your word this day, we have been reminded again of your grace. And so we pray that individually and collectively we would find our way to the foot of the cross. Thank you for the assurance that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need that cleansing touch. Purify our hearts, O God. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. Lord, this is the cry of our heart this day. By your spirit, accomplish all that you desire. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.